not every gig is brilliant, but you're always striving to get to that place. I don't know whether you call it the state of flow. It's almost like a spiritual place where nothing else matters and you're just present in it. When you talk about imposter syndrome, I was, from a young age, I truly believed that the opportunity would come and when it came, I would be ready. Then when it came, I was like, I grabbed it with both hands and I was like, I'm in. And I was 100% in the whole way. I still have huge dreams. I'm, I'm, you talk about the, having your eyesight. I still, every day, still believe the best is yet to come, even after doing all of these wonderful things. Hello, it's Andrew May, and welcome to another episode of the Performance Intelligence Podcast, the podcast about all things human performance. Today's guest is a rock star in the true sense of the word. Kieran Gribben, also known in music circles as Joe Echo, is a self-employed musician and Grammy Award-nominated songwriter and performer. He is a founding member of the popular Irish band Layer, which toured for seven years with major acts, including Snow Patrol and Embrace. He wrote the song Hey Baby Doll, which was sung by Al Pacino in the critically acclaimed movie Danny Collins. I'm only into the start of this. I'm already feeling an inferiority complex compared to this guy. He's a proud Irishman. He was born at the time of the Northern Ireland conflict, and he cut his teeth doing gig after gig in the tough bars of Belfast and Derry. Kieran's first big break on a global scale came in 2010 when he received a Grammy nomination for Madonna's World Wide Hit Celebration. That song just rings in my ear as I'm saying this, which he co-wrote with megastar producer Paul Oakenfold. He soon became a regular drawcard at music festivals around the world, including Brazil's Rock and Rio, and he's opened for concerts and acts, including, oh my goodness, Paul McCartney, Crowded House, The Script, and Goitier. He's also worked on multiple movie soundtracks, including writing all the songs for the U2-supported feature film, Killing Bono. In 2011, if you think that's good, he went up another notch. He became the singer of legendary Australian band In Excess, and he has toured extensively throughout South America, Europe, and Australasia. Kieran is the founder of Rock and Roll Team Building, a company delivering interactive music programs using the universal language of music. He also co-found Vibrate Your Mind workplace wellbeing programs, which raises energy to vibrate minds into a lighter, happier and calmer place with sound therapy in music. All the way from Northern Ireland, he now resides in Wollongong with his wife and two children. Kieran Gribbins, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. That was a, a lovely introduction. Thanks for having me. Well, I think we're over now. We've done the introduction. We've run out of time. That's it. That's all we've got Enough time for today. Enough about me. What about you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, a rough plan for today because researching you, there's a lot. There's a plethora of information. The rough order I've got is number one, growing up in Ireland and how you started out in the music industry. Two, these names, Madonna, U2, Paul McCartney, Snow Patrol, Al Pacino. I want to pull on the thread on a few of those. Three, in excess. Four performance moments. I want to talk to you about what you do to get ready. I was fortunate, blessed to see you perform a couple of weeks ago. A mutual buddy of ours, Shane Lee, had lunch with Lee. And two things Shane Lee does really well is lunch and speak. So what better way to have a podcast, which he did. I was the MC, and you were the entertainment. And when you started singing, the whole crowd stopped. But I saw you shift state before you sang and I want to pull on the thread of what you've learned what you do to get ready for a performance moment I want to talk about rock and roll team building and vibrate your mind we're going to finish with the performance intelligence baker's dozen 13 rapid fire questions now normally Kieran I go in sequential order and I've got a bit of OCD but I want to shake it up I've got to go to in excess I'm a bit of a fanboy I love in excess grew up listening to Michael Hutchins and the Farris brothers and 
pretending I was Kirk Pengelly playing an imaginary saxophone. But can we go way back? How did that start? How did you find yourself there? How did you first come into contact with with the band members? Or take us back. Um, it was probably uh, 2009, 2008, when I first met Andrew Farris. Andrew is a keyboard player and and, uh, and songwriter in the band. Like I, I was touring Australia with a Scottish uh, artist called Paolo Natini, and when we got to Sydney, I was staying on the northern beaches of Sydney at my manager's sister's home, and they, they had a beautiful place near Newport. And Andrew was frequenting this home regularly, so we, I just lucked out in meeting this guy, and I grew up. You know, like you, maybe I'm not an Aussie, but I grew up with In Excess's music. Uh, you know, when I was getting, particularly that sort of teenage years, kick was 87 and, and right through to like sort of 91, I think, or 92, whenever they were playing Wembley, I was just like a fan. So all my mates were a fan. So I was like uh, meeting Andrew Farris for the first time and hanging out with him for three or four days in the Northern Beaches, getting breakfast on the beach in the morning and then going back to this home and playing music and listening to old records or old productions that didn't exist, unreleased stuff. He was letting me hear everything. So I was like having this dream couple of days hanging out with a hero. And then, you know, we, we, one thing led to another and eventually there's people coming around for dinner and drinks are flowing and guitars are coming out and we're singing pieces of music and, you know, we're singing everything, covers or Irish songs, original songs. And, and about two in the morning, someone said, why don't you sing an NXS song? And Andrew's on the guitar. And, and I said, I've never sang an NXS song. So they literally printed out the lyrics of Mystify. So I, uh, I had a, a very average attempt at Mystify, I thought. Uh, I did. But Andrew, it obviously left a lasting impression, or I did on Andrew. So uh, that, was the, that was the sort of, the seeds were planted then. And I went home to Ireland telling everyone that I've met Andre Paris from Menix says he's a mate, and they're like, yeah, 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 all good. No, that you're your mates in Ireland to think you're full of shit. They'd go, yeah, yeah, exactly. you, you've been yeah. You know, smoking the green stuff or drinking too much. Because <laughs> when you say that story, two a.m. in the morning, you, you probably you know, have people partaking in certain things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Look, I think uh, you know, I was in Australia for. I think it was my first time, yes it was, it was my first time in Australia. So I was just one, blown away by the shock, the culture shock, and then, you know, two, you know, I had three or four days off in Sydney and I had this just amazing time with friends and everyone's having a party for three or four days. So, you know, wine's flowing, certain substance of, uh, you know, green grass stuff was uh, smoked and it was fun. It was just one of those times where I was like, thinking I'll never be back in Australia again. I'll never be here. This is like my one and only time to come and hang out. And here I am hanging out with a, a genuine rock star, a guy who I idolized growing up with. So that was the first sort of, I, I was sort of blessed as probably the best way to describe my first uh, taste of Australia. So you meet Andrew Farris, you're staying on a lounge at a mutual friend's place. You, you hang out for three or four days. How did you reconnect? What happened after that? That, that time was particularly good. It was almost like there's times in your life when things, all, all the seeds that you've sown six months or six years ago, they all start to come together at the same time. I'm sure you saw this in, in business world and sporting world. Well, at that time, my career was like, wow. I, I was in Australia, had just written the Madonna song and she'd picked it up and recorded it. And 
they were about to release it. So I went home to, I think, you know, the next sort of six months of, wow, Madonna's released this song that I've co-written with Oakenfold. And I forgot all about Andrew, to be honest. He got on with his life. He was touring with the band. And there was an, an email here and there. But then out of the blue, I got um, an email going, hey, man, do you want to come to Australia and do a bit of writing? I've been thinking about you. Because he was like, He's a songwriter and, you know, as, as he's always been, his best work has been co-writing sessions, obviously with Michael, him and Michael were like the sort of dream partnership, uh, like Lennon and McCartney, they were like unstoppable, the, the, the ridiculous amount of hits the two of them wrote together. So I think he liked me and he, he thought, well, like, let's come and just be writing partners. And if you fancy, if you fancy meeting the band, when you're down the next time, uh, maybe we could meet the band and have a bit of fun and maybe play a bit of music. And I'm like, so what, what are you saying here, man? Am I going to get an audition for NXS? And he was like, yeah, if you want one. I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll, take, the, I'll take that up. But my wife was uh, eight months pregnant at the time, so. Perfect timing to, perfect to go timing. overseas. So that's what I'm saying, audition, everything was yeah. coming together. I've got the Madonna thing, we're, we're we were on the road as a songwriter. I was I was talk, in talks with doing movie soundtracks, the Killing Bono movie at that time. It all was coming together. And not just my hard work, it was like I had been with a manager in London for 10 years at this time. So the two of us had put the hard yards in and we were now starting to reap the benefits of all the, the graft and the hard work. It's Rip Van Winkle. You become an overnight success in 20 years. So you've done the exactly. work. I, I've got to, I've got to ask. You can tell me no, but you're in a studio. So for people who are watching this on video, you've got a wonderful studio set up there down on the beautiful New South Wales South Coast. You've got a guitar over your right shoulder. Can you lean over and grab that? I'd love, I'd love you to take us through the audition <laughs> of Mystify. Tune, do whatever you need to do. And you know, as a non-musician, I just think it's a gift being able to pick up a guitar. If I could do that, Kieran, I'd open every keynote. <laughs> Here's something I'd put together for you today. So, uh, well, I'll play it. You can, you set can the have scene. a glass. Of, you can have a glass of wine and pretend it's two a.m. in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Bit of Cheech and Chong. <laughs> All veils are misty. Streets of blue. Diamond looks. That chill divine. Some silver moment. just throw out the rest of my questions and can we do a couple of tracks wizard has just written a message saying he can't wait to go home and tell his wife he's listening to the lead singer of in excess apparently she's a massive fan Wiz, what song would you like now because i reckon my questions she named are her dog after that song so really yeah your wife named your dog she, her dog she named her dog misty after that song Did ah you? there you go yeah wow and we danced to never tear us apart at our wedding I think Wizard just wants to listen to you sing. I think it was it's his, it's his dirty way of getting you to sing more. It's like having your own concert, Wizard. Oh, that's great. <laughs> right, well, I'll do Never Tear Us Apart. So this one's for Nick. Is that right? For Nicky. Yeah, I call it Nick anyway, so that works. Yeah, Nick. All right. Nicky. 
Well, this song is dedicated to Nikki, the wizard's wife. So he's obviously, what would that make her? Is she a wizard? Wife of the wizard. Wow. Wife of the wizard. All right, good. What's the first line of Never Tears Apart then, Andrew May? They were never... No, I've gone to the chorus. (laughs) (laughs) You're the singer, champ. I'm the podcast guy. Mm, Don't ask me What you know is true I don't have to tell you And I love your precious eyes I, I was standing You were there Two worlds colliding And they could never tear us apart Wizards here playing his imaginary drums. How <laughs> much are you going to be in the good bix for the rest of your life? I've got the I got the words "never tear and us apart" engaged on the inside of Nikki's engagement. Oh, did you hear that? That's oh, lovely. You. Well, you tell you tell Nikki I will sing it to her at a gig some night. <laughs> you big sentimental wizard. Are they tears? <laughs> He's looking a bit teary. There is. He's a big, gruff, solid guy. And you've, That's all. You've let's talk about music and love. I've just got my my Christmas present all set. It's all <laughs> wonderful. Well, happy Christmas, Nikki. <laughs> oh, I, I love podcasting, and I love your authenticity. And and again, for people who are listening to this, you just you you go into that mode straight away. You close the eyes. It's just like. Does, does the world around you stop? Tell me, what, what's going through your head yeah, when you go a, into a, character? That's a good way to describe it. I've, I've, I've had this conversation with quite a few people over my life and career, or, you know, where you, where you go when you're on stage in that moment. And, you know, you don't always get to that place. Not every gig is brilliant, but you're always striving to get to that place. I don't know whether you call it the state of flow. It's almost like a spiritual place where you go. You can go there with prayer or meditation, or you can go there when you're in the ocean, that place Mm. where nothing else matters and you're just present in it. You know, I think, you know, I've been singing on stage since I was 15. I'm now 46. So there's a, there's that sort of repetition of doing the same thing over and over again. 30 years of of my life, every weekend and, and singing. So I can go to that place pretty quickly now. Let's just close your eyes, be in the note. I heard Nadav Khan, who I work with, who's a meditation specialist and for 20 years has been talking about far the chant and om and singing. He talks about being present in the note. The note is all there is when you're singing om or you're singing anything. So time stands still. You're in that, you're locked into whatever it is, the melody, the, the notes, the chord progression. And it's a, it's a feeling. It's it's hard to describe, but it's definitely a feeling. It's a it's a vibe. It's an energy that you plug into. Yeah, you got Thomas in the good books. Um, I'm in the bad books. My 
partner, if she does listen to this, her name's Tony. Just wink, wink if we do any future songs coming up. In coaching psychology, Kieran, there's a term we call lag time, which is it takes you or it takes people a while to catch up with how others see them. So there was obviously a lot of lag time going on within excess, which I'll get to. But before, uh, I read a quote when he was introducing you. Rock star Andrew Farris talked about you being the new sensation, pardon the pun, and credited you for helping to reignite a new creative spark in the band. So here you are, this young guy from Northern Ireland, traveling the world, same with a buddy on the Northern Beaches. Suddenly, you're then working within excess. You know, in, in our era, arguably, you know, you'd have to say the top two or three bands of that era, just gods, and then you're playing with them. So how did you feel when he said that to you, that you're bringing a creative spark and a new energy to a band that you'd looked up to and idolized oh look there's the initial this is wonderful and it's a dream to be hearing these words from someone that you love and it wasn't just the the andrew the all all the band members i i took time you know and had the pleasure of writing many songs with john andrew's brother and many with kirk and and even gary and, and he's based in los angeles you know, I, as a musician, and I'd been in bands all my life, uh, it's a very tough dynamic being in a band. You know, you've got your own ego. I got pretty good at sort of blending in because I'd been in bands from I was 15, 16. So, you know, you, you, you're there to do a job. And that job for me was to bring whatever I can musically and add to this group or whatever, and it's the, it's the same that every musician does when you walk into any co-writing session. Sometimes you're meeting the guy for the same time, but this was different. This was a a band that had a, a legacy that was like unbelievable as part of the social fabric of Australia. So the pressure was there to uh, not only sing these songs on stage, but to be brought into the fold, the inner circle where these guys are trusting me to be in the room and be creative. That's That was the dream. That was the icing on the cake for, for, for me within Excess. The sad thing, you know, with that, a lot of those songs didn't see the light of day, that, you know, for me, it wasn't with the fact with the songs that where I'm still co-writing with Andre, I'm still co-writing with John and I've got uh, these songs will probably see the light of day. They just not might not come out under the brand of In Excess. So, you know, John and I have released music together under the name Jack, John and Kieran, J-A-C, and Andrew's new single, You Are My Rock, is a co-write with me. So there's, as long as these songs get out to the world, that's all I care about. And they will. I've had to be patient because a lot of them were written 10 years ago. For me, the in excess experience in general, those 18 months were just magical. I, I got, my wife and I, with our newborn, got ripped out of Northern Ireland, moved to Australia, and then three months later, I'm on stage in front of 10,000 people, 20,000 people, 30,000 people in South America. And you're just going, what? How does this happen? It was like, it literally is dream come true. Everything you've ever dreamt of as a child coming true, you're walking it out. Literally, you're there seeing it. And you dreamt this when you were a child. I quote a blog of yours. You say, it was my second gig within excess when we headlined a festival in Buenos Aires. There were 30,000 people at the gig. I'd never seen so many people. And as the band kicked into the opening bars of Suicide Blonde, it was a very special moment watching all those people go crazy. The adrenaline was rushing in my veins and I remember screaming with pure joy, feeling like I have arrived. It really was living a lifelong dream. Mm. I'll never forget the moment because everybody remembers that John Farris 
taking a drag of a joint at the start of the Wembley gig and flicking it. And then he, he, before he goes into Guns in the Sky, he has this peace sign where the hand goes up and he acknowledges the crowd. Then he drops into the drums. And I'm standing behind that guy in front of a sea of people watching him and the band kick in that drop into and he's laying into it and i'm just going i'm watching this ocean of people bounce up and down and i'm i could touch john's shoulder i'm that close to him i'm starting the, the song behind him and these things that are only uh, my child screaming in the background. <laughs> that that these, brings you back to reality, doesn't this it? This is a just total reality. This is a home cry. studio. Yeah. This literally is a home studio. <laughs> yeah, that that was that moment um, was a very special one. But it was amazing how quickly I settled in. You know, those first couple of gigs, obviously, nerves were were amazing and overwhelming, and there wasn't much sleep. And our first gig was in Peru, in the in Arequipa. We were had oxygen masks at the side of the stage, as if there wasn't enough going on that you need you needed to worry about uh, how much oxygen you were getting in because of the high altitude. But yeah, it was it was just a time of, of for me of where I was just like, wow, this is this is like I've had this run where the Madonna song and then working on the U2 movie and then all of a sudden I've just got the gig singing with NXS and I'm standing there with a newborn child living in Australia. It, it just happened so fast. It was a whirlwind. Was there any imposter syndrome? Because I can imagine all the adulation that crowd bouncing as you're talking about starting that like we were there with you. Was there were there any moments where you then sat back a month or two later and went, Jesus, like these are massive shoes, like Michael Hutchins, rock god. There was definite reservations like weeks before the, the my very first shows. I remember speaking to Chris Murphy, who's sadly no longer with us anymore. He died, I think, just before COVID. Um, I was with the long-term manager of the band and. I told Chris, look, I don't know, man, I'm, I'm really nervous about this. I, I wasn't sleeping. I was really nervous. And those two people influenced me. Chris was the first person that said, well, just, you know, the songs, just walk the gig out in your head. And it was the first time where anyone had ever, I was, I was very nervous because really the first band had ever been in that I wasn't playing guitar and you can hide behind a guitar and sing, but you're exposed and in excess in the fact that you were walking into the shoes of, of everyone sees it as Michael's uh, and rightly so. Um, so there was a, I had to pay that respect to him and, and I had to sing them to the best of my ability. And that's, that's really, Chris was the first one that helped me walk it out. And then my long-term friend, Michael Keeney, who was in Leia, the band of Belfast, I phoned them up and he said, look, man, you've, with regards to imposter syndrome, he says, you've, you've, you've done the hard yards. You've been singing since you were 15. Just use the same muscles you've always used. Go out there and sing. And you'll do okay if you just sing in tune and sing in time. So I sort of just went, after the first two gigs, after Buenos Aires, I went, I got this. I'm just going to be happy. So from then on, it was just smile on my face. As soon as we were getting to gig time, an hour before gig time, I was like, it's nearly gig time. I cannot wait. You know, it was like that every night. So you played 18 months and then there was a gig in WA in Perth. And then in the middle of that, one of your band members, one of your mates gets up and said, this is going to be the end of the tour. Now, you've had 18 months. They'd had decades. So I imagine there's a few different stories going on in your head compared to the original band members. Yeah. Look, it was a – look, for me, I think everything just had run its course at that time. I think um, the lads in the band had probably been in each other's shoes and travelled in each other's company for 
35 years at this stage. They'd lost Michael 20 years before, before I joined the band. So they'd been on they'd, their second sort of real major bite at the cherry with, with JD Fortune when they did the, the rock star in excess and they'd hits in America and released another successful record. And they didn't have anything to prove anymore musically. They didn't have anything to prove on a live stage. They'd done it all. I think maybe, you know, timing, looking back, if I had to come in maybe five years earlier, we probably would have had a couple of albums out and that would have been lovely. But at the same time, I have absolutely no regrets. The ride with these guys was just heaven for me. I was like, when you talk about imposter syndrome, I was from a young age, I truly believed that the opportunity would come. And when it came, I would be ready. So then when it came, I was like, I grabbed it with both hands and I was like, I'm in. And I was 100% in the whole way. We're going to get into mental skills in a moment. You've just done a beautiful definition of confidence. Confidence as a construct is one, doing the work, and then two, when that door opens, backing yourself. So I love hearing that. And again, there wasn't planned to ask you on this stuff. I just wanted to pull on that thread. And there's a real learning for anyone listening to this who goes, I'm not musical, I'm not a rock star, I don't really perform. It doesn't matter whatever domain it is. And, and Kieran, you know I love working in sport. I, I do work with a few performers behind the scenes. Sometimes I'll sign a non-disclosure agreement, so you're part mm. of their team, but you, know, you keep it to yourself. But the thing I've seen with all performers in multiple domains is they do the work, and it's hours, you know, years, mm. decades in some cases. And then when that door opens, bang, you launch yourself. So I love hearing that, that you got there. It's like, I, I've done the yards. I'm going to make the most of this. But, but also the band had done the yards. So I was walking into this tightly oiled machine of a band that were like, they knew each other like inside out musically. Every They'd explored every journey together over 35 years. So I was walking into this unique like standing beside John Farris and Gary Beers together, just hearing the bass and drums together at that level was something I'll never forget. And and it sort of, they raised the bar for me. They, you know, to walk into the company of those guys where I was just like, okay, this is the next level. And again, I was ready for the next level. I grabbed it and I threw myself into it. So it was kind of perfect time. And I, I was enjoying the fact that, you know, I didn't have to, there was no, there was no passengers. Every, everybody in that band, that's the beautiful thing about being in a band where you're not a solo artist, you're everyone's bringing their A game and everyone's done their 10,000 hours. So it's like, it's a pretty special, unique feeling when you've got that on firing in all cylinders and you're, you're watching the reaction of an audience and you're seeing an audience come alive and you're seeing the night come alive, whatever, those are special moments. You're a quintessential team guy. You're, the moment I met you, there's a warmth. You're always pumping up other people's tires, good Aussie term. You know, you're giving oxygen to others. But what did you bring? What did you bring to the guys who'd been belting out tunes for decades? Now, you did come after JD Fortune. I saw him in the Hunter Valley and they were at the peak of their reforming powers. I think he was totally wasted or he was a good actor. And, and JD seemed like he blew everything up. So there's two questions there, actually. First one is, what, what did you bring to them? What was the difference? And the second one is, what was different about what you bought compared to JD Fortune and what he bought? Well, I can't speak for JD. I met him a couple of times and I thought he was a great performer and they had their run with him. But again, that time had went. And when I came along, I suppose it was just perfect timing for Andrew in particular. I sowed that seed of creativity again where possi anything's possible. You've done it before. You've written hits before. So let's write more. 
and you know it wasn't a, a let's don't let's don't get bogged down in how we're going to get there let's just trust in the process and having a wee bit of sort of blind faith so maybe foolish faith but faith it is and and so maybe that's what i brought that sort of uh lit the spark again you're a very kind person on the outside looking in i think i think what you have that he doesn't is humility i think confidence with humility allows you to know where you are respectful of it run with it but not get too carried away with it well, I, I don't know whether it's an Irish trait, but, um, you know, I'm a country boy. I was born between two villages in County Derry. All my neighbours worked hard. It was a pretty uh, amazing community as far as I knew all my neighbours, knew all the, the local football club was the heart of the community. And so you had these sort of amazing role models. I've been thinking a lot about this even during the COVID period because I'm getting a bit older and I'm a dad and, I'm, you know, I remember, you know, now you, you go home to Ireland and you see these men that are in their 70s, the same age as my father, and you realise there was at least half a dozen, if not, well, if they were in the football team, there was at least half a dozen leaders. And I was surrounded by these sort of strong men who had strong values, strong morals, principles. But more than any, it was like this one for all, all for one attitude, community spirit thing that is can only, that comes from sport that you know all about where you get a team where they get they get that spirit that no one can put the finger on i had these unbelievable men as as uh, mentors although they weren't really trying to be mentors they were just great great men mm. northern ireland at that time was tough as an understatement what you would have seen in the streets the catholic versus protestant era that's got to have an impact on you yeah, it, it does. And it has a, had an impact on anyone that grows up in a place of conflict and divide and sectarianism, hatred. So yeah, it did. And, and, and I'm only sort of starting to process a lot of that stuff as I've gotten older. Thankfully, the music songwriting has been from a very, very young age. The songwriting was an outlet, a, a, a valve release where I could sort of, you know, escape you know, the sort of darkness of, of uh, the dark days of Northern Ireland, where it just was this tit for tat murder thing every day. You were just, you'd switch on the six o'clock news or your dad would have it on, be on the background and tonight in Belfast, another man is, is uh, beaten uh, within an inch of his life, or this guy was shot or this, this bomb went off here. So you had this, this constant negativity. So I suppose the Irish in general are, are very, very good at sort of going the polar opposite and, and sort of lifting the spirits and music was my way out of that and that's kind of ingrained in the irish culture as well back to the gaelic football club there was always music on there so i was like again influenced by these elders that could play music so i was running in there from i was six years of age the club down the road Newbridge. i was a castle dawson club but you know all of these gaelic football clubs had traditional irish music teaching the kids and bringing the kids in. So this was like, again, community and again, music, an outlet for the kids rather than getting dragged into the violence. Although, you know, it was very hard to stay away from get, getting into, or being dragged into sectarianism. You've said a couple of times today, you've been reflecting, thinking, I know when we caught up recently, you said, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about that. I said, you need to write a book. And you went, yeah, and I said, no, you need to write a book. But do you journal? Do you, do you actively sit down and or do you have a journal and do I have, you write I, I, I only recently uh, a good friend David Eccles from the WNI group gave me a book we walked up 
uh, with a bunch of men up to Kosciuszko and he gave me a book. It's here in front of me. And I, I since then I've been journaling, but it's mostly, you know, I meet people and I go, I need to write down what I spoke to that person because if I don't, I forget it. That's one of the biggest problems in, in, with me. I'm, I'm carrying all of this stuff in my head. Uh, but that's where the songs come from. So I need to live in my head as well a lot. That's the that's the thing. So songwriting is journaling. Songwriting poetry is journaling. And I'm always always recording stuff on my phone. I'm driving along in the car and I'm I'm, I'm recording, <laughs> you know, it, you know, a little ditty or a little songwriting piece that might never see the light of day. But that's the how I get stuff out. I put it down. I record it rather than journal. Yeah, the light bulb's gone on for me on that, that it's not just writing in a journal. And a lot of people who do try journaling, they try it a very staccato way. Dear diary, today I had lunch. I had ham sandwich. I like ham. That That's just bullshit rubbish that's got nothing to do with feelings or meaning or emotion or layers. But when you write about events that happened to you and how that made you feel or react, good, bad or indifferent, you can make meaning. And we often say in journaling, it's coach thyself. So Kieran, when I have a, an athlete or a high performer I work with on an ongoing basis, I get them to get a journal. And it doesn't have to be a moleskin from a fancy shop worth $50. Just get a shitty book that's $2 from Coles or Woolworths. And just write in thoughts as they come up. That's really interesting. As they come up, you then start seeing patterns and making meaning. So it is coach thyself. The parallel with songwriting is huge. So yeah, you are you are journaling on a regular basis. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's it, the beautiful thing about songwriting as well is though, you know, writing creative writing, no matter what it is, whether you're writing a book or writing poetry or songwriting, it's getting the stuff that matters in your head out onto paper. That's the, that process is very, very good. It's therapeutic. It's, uh, it's, um, but the, 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 the great thing for, for the songwriter is that you can, you can turn something that's possibly negative that's running around in your head. One of those sort of earworms or tape things that you play over and over again, you can play with that and put it on a, into a song uh, those little things. That's so that that has been one of the reasons why I write songs. I don't really know why I write songs. I just do. I think I was influenced heavily by I had a headmaster in primary school, Mr. Scullion, and he read us Seamus Heaney poems every day. So I was obsessed with them. I could see Heaney was a local uh, man that did well and was Nobel poet and Nobel laureate poet, and he was a massive influence to everyone in my community because he was a hero to everyone because he came from our community. And so when, when I was a child, I was like, well, if Seamus Heaney can be famous writing words down and putting stuff together and making little things up, well, then I can do it. You told me previously, so I, I do similar. Just You've just made me think I journal on a whole different level I didn't even realise because I always write notes. We said, you know this, we're in a meeting and I'm always writing notes on my iPhone. You've just given me a whole different frame, but that is a form of journaling. Thank you. So this is what you told me. You said that essentially I am a creative and I see the vision in my head and I train myself to switch gears as a producer and a solo artist and singing in a band. Yeah. So there's a lot of different roles there. You're turning up you know, from front guy to being in a band to behind the scenes they're all very different roles was it mm. difficult working that out and working out the voices in your head 
Yeah, look, I think not not difficult. I think just time is the is the only key to work these working these sort of things out. You have to give yourself the time to focus on being a singer. That's one hat you wear. Then there's focus on you know the gigs, having the regular gig to go to. You've got a deadline and you've got something coming up on Saturday night and they want you to sing this song and it's a wedding and you're like Oh God, here I go. I got to learn that bloody song for this wedding. But then the process of learning the song and you go, well, that's, that actually isn't a bad song. And before you know it, you're standing there and the bride and groom are in front of you and you're singing the song for this special moment and everyone around them's crying and you go, you realize the power of music then. So you're, it's the struggle to get there. And then you, the, the beauty for me is that I'm seeing on a gig as a singer, these sort of moments of wonder where you can change the room you can with the piece of music with the song you can make someone's day better by doing it so i've kind of approached the every gig to that there's going to be someone in this room's going to come away feeling better because we're here one of my really good friends who i grew up running with i'm sure you know your best friends don't listen to your podcast or read your book so i'm sure he won't listen to this but he sang a song for his wife at a wedding in the hunter valley and everyone was crying but it wasn't the same tears that you were making. It was terrible. <laughs> it was fucking awful. And we tried talking him out of it. We're going, no, don't do it. No. But anyway, they're still happily married. So it must have got them off well, to a good start. Well, it was the thought that counts. It was. It was. Yes. Give yes. the guy a better credit. Yeah. And I should give him a bit more. Now, a guy that we both are mutual friends with who gave you a lot of credit, he in fact introduced us, is Shane Lee. And Shane prompted me to ask you about when you were a young lad playing in Northern Ireland and when the club was raided and everyone had to prove their religion. Yeah. Yeah, well, um, there's a few sort of elements like that. I think there's been, there's been, there's many sort of moments that stand out where I'm on stage and violence, the gig just pours into this sort of bloodshed or scary moments. The the one that's, that stands out that I, 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 that I live regularly is is um, standing in a room because it was a defining moment. I'm standing in a room with my best friend Paul on drums. We're about 18, I don't know, 19. And there's these heavies at the at the door. We're par- parking our van up or a truck outside with a trailer on the back. And the guy goes, don't you worry, guys, this stuff's safe tonight. And I'm like thinking, this is a bit odd. Who are these heavies standing at the door? But we set up the gig and we've got two beautiful girls on stage beside us. Everyone's dressed in their finery. We're told it's a football club we're playing for, and there's about 250, 300 people in the room, circular tables, all getting their dinner served to them, dressed in bow ties. And we we play our first set, and then all of a sudden a guy comes up mid-song, stops me mid-song and goes, I need your microphone. And I'm like, well, all right, mate. So I stop the band, and he takes the mic, and he goes, ladies and gentlemen, please be upstanding for the UVF. And the UVF is the Ulster Volunteer Force, their paramilitary organization, 100% Protestant, loyal to the Queen, uh, responsible for, you know, atrocious things that people do and did in Northern Ireland, like the IRA, they all did similar things. And it was all sectarianism. And I thought, as a Catholic standing in a room, I realized that there was 15 men marched into the room, 12 to 15 men dressed in all of their, their... uh, Paranalia, whatever it's called, balaclavas, dressed in black Kalashnikovs, Uzis and grenades strapped to their chest. And they march in and their their leader shouts, company halt, like they're soldiers. But that was scary enough. They march across the front of the stage, but the entire audience are on their feet chanting, you, you, UVF, you, you, UVF, for a good minute till they 
till it settles down. And I'm still on stage with these two girls beside me who are from Belfast, both Protestants, myself and Paul, my best friend, are Catholics. We're the only two Catholics in the room. And they weren't there. They didn't give a shit about us. They were there to read a statement out for the loyalist prisoners, but we didn't know that at the time. I'm standing there like literally the closest thing to piss running down my leg in fear and Paul's on drums and we're looking at each other and they finish the statement, they read a statement out from the loyalist prisoners and everyone in the room is the high command of the UVF and their wives and their wives and partners. So it's like the who's who of the UVF in that area uh, in Belfast. And he hands the microphone back to me and he goes, sing you shit as they march off. And, and I, uh, I look at the band and I go, let's do Simply the Best by Tina Turner. And we, we go straight into it. And literally the dance floor fills. Now, the, the reason why I did Simply the Best, because the flags of the UVF and all of these uh, housing estates, because they mark their territories, they paint their curbs red, white, and blue, and they mark their flags and their mark flags. So they're literally letting everyone know. Their motto was something in Latin, which I can't remember, and then Simply the Best. So I sang Simply the Best, and of course they just filled the floor. So that was, that saved me. Music saved me. That we did YMCA as well. I don't. Want, I want to let them know that we had big butch men with mustaches going YMCA. It all went on. Two gorgeous Jeez, girls. That's in quick thinking, isn't it? Simply the Best. Who would think? Who would have ever <laughs> thought that Tina Turner is going to save you? Uh, now you laugh about that now, but that that's. That's a full-on experience to keep your composure. That, that was Mental Skills 101, just to see how you and your buddy handled yourselves. Well, like I think Northern Ireland, you grew up with it. Everybody just got on with life as best they possibly could. And they, there was a, there's the humour, the dark humour that that is in Northern Ireland's uh, psyche, that's in the, the Northern Irish people, is like nowhere else. Like if you hear a good Northern Irish comedian in a room in Belfast, just... And, and when they can go and say anything, it is just people like Patrick Kilty. I remember coming up and seeing Kilty in Belfast in the Empire when we were young, maybe 18, 19, 20, 21. And that humour, you know, Kilty's father was killed by loyalist paramilitaries, like probably the UVF or the UDA or whoever it was. And he jokes about all of that, that he just plays that fine line. And that's where he started. And so humor and music was such a a way to deal with it and deflect just this wave of negativity. Well, it built you up for some success with some pretty big artists. So Madonna, you two, Paul McCartney, Snow Patrol and Al Pacino, I mentioned in the introduction. Uh, this is going to be a three-hour podcast if we go on deep on each, but maybe just give me a bite size on each one of those people and working with them uh, or w- what is a lasting memory? We'll start with Madonna. Well, I never met the lady. I wrote the song in a studio in London. Started the song started in a studio in London with me and a guy called Ian Green, amazing musician, songwriter, uh, producer, and Oakenfold, the DJ, loved what we were doing. Ian would have worked a lot, done a remixes and stuff for Oki, and and then I got to meet him, and he was like, "This stuff's really good. I want to play it to Madonna." And it literally went from there. Like two months later, from him playing it to Madonna. The song was finished. She had re- she had done her parts in New York. Ian had flown to New York to, to record her vocal. My vocals are still on the track, as in backing vocals. We we kept what I wrote, changed bits. They kept they, and she added a good chunk of stuff. So it's a co-write with Ian Green, Madonna, Paul Oakenfold, and myself. And it it went the title track of her greatest hits, Celebration, and 
one beautiful moment for me was arriving in Sydney, actually, and the song was just released. Around that time, I'd met Andrew Farris for the first time, and we were walking down, I don't know, uh, somewhere in Surrey Hills meeting music people, and the taxi that dropped us off, we got out of the taxi, and there's an ad board in the back of the boot of the taxi, and it was Madonna, Celebration, Greatest Hits, and, and the, the picture, like uh, the Andy Warhol-style picture of her face. And I just stood with Bob, and we just had this moment of, wow, we, we, this is us. We're here in Sydney, and there's an advertising board with a song that I co-wrote with Madonna on the back of the cab. That was a high moment for that. So when you hear that song, what, what, what do you feel? Because it must be weird. The only context I've got for it, not being being so non-musical, is we'd be like writing a speech for someone and hearing them give a, an amazing speech with millions of people listening to it. I imagine there's some real joy and there'd be also a bit of, oh, shit, I've contributed to that. And that could elicit some interesting feelings. Oh, look, it's just wonderful that my voice is on a record with the Queen of Pop, Madonna, regardless of what you say about the woman. I'm, I'm certainly not a, a, the most super fan, but I, I, you cannot take away the the impact she's had in the world of pop music. There wasn't big Katy Perry's or Lady Gaga's. Madonna did it all before every one of them. Doesn't matter how much times they try to shock people. Madonna shocked the world 20 years before anyone else was even thinking of doing it. And she was breaking ground with new producers and musicians. So she, she's a legend and a living one. And so, so to have that on my CV and then it got Grammy nominated was just like, again, the icing on the cake. It opened the doors. That was before that. I was like with Bob, my manager, we felt we were always knocking on doors going, Hey, can we get on your festival? Or, Hey, Kieran's good. Can you get him on this? Or, Hey, can I support this guy? And there was loads of wonderful moments. Don't get me wrong, but that was the, the turning point of the first time the phone was ringing the other way where there was A&R guys from labels phoning me from, from Hong Kong to New York to London. And I was like, yes, I have arrived and I'm in playing with the big boys. And from that, it just, it just, the phone kept ringing and I was regularly in London doing movie songs and working on movie soundtracks. And that, that led to working with the, the U2 back movie Killing Bono. And again, I never met Bono either. <laughs> Briefly met him at an event in London a couple of years after it, but he was friends with a guy called Neil McCormick. Neil McCormick is a, a well-known British writer who writes uh, entertainment writer and has sort of reviewed lots of albums and he's known within that world of, and he's, he grew up with you 2 and was in, in the first rehearsals in Larry Mullen's kitchen. So the movie starts in Larry Mullen's kitchen and the McCormick brothers, Neil and his brother Ivan, are there. This is fact. This is true. So you two can't play their instruments. They're, they're turning up in the kitchen. They're turning on a PA for the first time. Larry Mullen set up a drum kit and these McCormick brothers are there. So as you two go off to superstardom, slowly growing their career, I, the, the, the movie starts, I'm working with these McCormick brothers, rewriting their music and telling, working with the director to tell the, the, the story through music. It was made in Belfast. It was uh, just wonderful to be involved on set on a music in a movie uh i'm uh, the small wee tiny parts you can catch me here dancing to duran duran on a with a fake wig and makeup and but to be working with the actors in the studio putting them through their paces writing songs for scenes working with the director him going this is the scene here's the script we've, we've rewrote it we need a song for this and it needs to say x y and z all right i'm your man so i spent like maybe six months of my life working on Killing Bono. You know, I was doing other stuff as well, but it was a six month pro, uh, process. Mm -hmm. And 
talk to me about Paul McCartney and sharing a stage with him. I think, was it Wembley Stadium you shared? Yeah, well, again, I was like, I was on at the, at the, at the crack of the day when, the day when they're starting to fill this place up, but I have a poster in my bedroom. You know, I need to write, write all this for you. Just go, yeah, Madonna, it was great celebration. Yeah, it was six months on the set with all the gang. Paul McCartney, oh, <laughs> Mikado. Yeah, every Aussie name yeah, has an Maca. O&E. Yeah, let, let me rewrite this for you, champ. <laughs> it's that combination of confidence and humility. It just comes out so loud and clear in this interview. All right, we digress. Paul McCartney. Oh, well, th- that was a special day in that it was 40 degree heat, Hyde Park, London. Live, uh, who, what was the name of uh, I can't remember the name of the festival, but on the bill was McCartney headlining, Crosby, Stills and Nash and Young, Crowded House, Elvis Costello, and then a bunch of songwriters, like half a dozen songwriters, and I was one of those names. And I, I, I have the poster in my in my bedroom in Ireland. At that time, I was running under the 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 name Joe Echo. So I'd spent maybe five years after Leia, the band I was in. I just wanted to experiment with a new name, uh, experiment with new sounds, and sort of push myself. And that was kind of that five year period was kind of the most creative period of my life because I just said to Bob, my manager, who was like business partner we were in it together we never had a crossword we were brothers um he's a songwriter as well he came from the band status quo if you know those guys he Do wrote them a lot of well, those yeah he wrote a lot of status quo hits with francis rossi and rick parfit and bob and i for five years just i said to bob just drop me into country songwriting sessions jazz blues djs pop so he went out and just sort of this guy, this Irish guy wants to write songs. So who wants to write songs with him? And that's where the, all of the, the, those, I started planting seeds when I was writing those songs and they all started finding homes and movies. So it was this period of five years of beauty, just blessings. There's a lot of resilience there, Kieran, because look, we, we, we talk about everyone's top hits or I call the A-side in a podcast when we all had cassettes when we were young lads. You'd put your top hits and play those and you'd flick the cassette over and you'd have the B-side, which are the hits that weren't as popular or no one had heard yet. But you've got to have a really strong B-side, you know, the songs that people haven't heard yet, the resilience to pick yourself up. Guy, I can imagine you've gigged, met, played with, hung out with with lots of really talented musicians who still aren't around now because two, three, four, five knockbacks would have been enough to break them. Now, I'm getting all conceptual on you. We call this case conceptualization and coaching psychology, but I can't help but think the young lad growing up in Northern Ireland amidst all that Mm. tragedy, horror, fear, yet wonderful connection with the Gaelic footy community and the singing. So you had the juxtaposition of that. So it obviously formed inside you a real resolve or a confidence with who you are. Have, have you explored that? Yeah, look, I, I, I tend to not sort of uh, overanalyze myself too much because you get, the Aussies call it the tall poppy, um, where, you know, you feel as if even yourself, I start questioning myself. So I don't think too much about... I think I, I've got good at just taking it one day at a time now and focusing on what is it I'm trying to do in this day. Um, but I still have huge dreams. I'm, I'm, you talk about the having your A side. I still, every day, still believe the best is yet to come. Even after doing all of these wonderful things, I, I can see 
I'm sowing seeds left, right and center. The COVID era has re reignited a fire under me where I, I felt enclosed like we all did and felt trapped and felt lonely and felt, is this ever going to open up again? And it, what it did for me was that, you know, when I got out and was free to explore again, I was like, yes, this is where I'm going to focus on the next, uh, the A-side, the next classic album or whatever you want to call it. I love hearing that and I love seeing you light up. I love hearing the passion in your voice because 45, you're young. Interesting for our grandparents, it was old. Oh, you're 45, look at what you're doing the next 10 years, retire, get a pension. But we'll get you to 100. You know, Dr. Tom Buckley, who is influential in a lot of the work I do and co-wrote the book MatchFed, we, we're doubling down on this whole longevity pathway and it's what you do now in your 40s and 50s and 60s that gets us forward another podcast for another day. But I love seeing that passion, that enthusiasm, and I want to ride that wave with you, champ. Uh, to, to be, I want to be at a concert that you're headlining and there's all these little upstarts, young puppets, you know, smaller ink, you up the top, and I want to be in that wave. It's called collective flow. And you, you talked about flow at the start, or I talked about flow in your song. Collective flow is another le level. If, if anyone's been to a dance party, you get it at a football match or a, you know, watching a netball big tournament where the whole crowd is in unison. So I can you, you hear the sharp intake of breath as they miss the goal or yeah. whatever. Everyone's doing it exactly at the same time. It's wonderful. Mm. So balancing all that, what you've done as a kid growing up, and interesting, my take, when you talk about yourself, you, def you deflect. You, do you not feel comfortable talking about yourself? Or have you grown up that don't do that? You're a big head? Oh, well, like I like to do the talking on stage, like more than uh, I think it's important to, to focus on your work and what you want to achieve with the work. Uh, there is a, There comes a time where you have to, you know, as a musician, and it's a tough one, where you're the artist, but then you have to start thinking like the marketer and start to look at yourself as the product. And these these type of questions growing up in Ireland, or these type of sort of thought processes growing up in Ireland weren't in my head or weren't in my education. I left school at 16 and haven't stopped gigging since. So it was like a case of failure after failure. Thankfully, a lot of it wasn't captured on on iPhones because they weren't around, but I, I've made my fair share of mistakes on stage and made myself, I, I looking back on some of the things I've done, you know, you, you go at the time, well, that was a fucking stupid thing to do, you idiot. It's the only way to learn. Uh, and so gigs with regards to talking about my, my friend, Michael Keeney, again, you can talk about music all day, but if you play a couple of chords together, it, it says more things than a million words can, you know what I mean? Why do you do what you do? I've got deep on you, but we've been going a bit of time now. So purpose, what drives you? What do you want to look back and go, yeah, I'm really proud of the influence I had? Well, one, I know I've been gifted in that music is in my very DNA. So I have to use it. If I don't, I die like a flower. So that has to be my friend Ray Thistlethwaite from Thirsty Merc said it's like a, a flower. You got to keep going back and watering it every day. If you don't, it'll die within a week, so or two. So that that is, I'm I'm blessed in that I feel that I was literally blessed with a gift. So I have to do it. And then two, I've seen the power of music. I've seen the power of healing. Power of music. I see it in education, lifting the spirits of children. I see it at a football match when there's a thousand people or 10,000 singing the same thing, uh, whether it's a chant at the referee or it's a, 
laughing at the striker missing the goal or whatever it may be. They're all, and this, it's just this wonderful unifying thing. And I, I become obsessed then as a performer, not just as a singer, as an entertainer that I, I just want, I, I know my audiences and I, I, I want everyone to enjoy themselves. And I, I'm there, I turn up every time, regardless if there's six in a room or if there's 60,000 in a room, I don't care, I turn up. Because I just have that mentality that I'm supposed to be doing this, and this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And I suppose lifting spirits is a big part of it, but as an entertainer, um, but there's, you know, I love it. I absolutely adore it. I was gigging on Friday night with Peter Northcote on guitar, one of the best guitar players in Australia, and, and a drummer, and, and Victor Rounds on bass. And it was just unbelievable standing on stage with these great musicians. So that's why I do it. It's, it's, it's kind of like a vocation more than a job. Yeah, but you can make it the same thing, right? It sounds a bit cliche. This sounds very American, so I'll give it an American accent. But if you can make your vocation feel like a vacation, you've arrived at the right destination. <laughs> yeah. Wizards yeah. just looking at me going, where did that shit come from? <laughs> well, look, I, I, I also, I, it has to be fun. I, I have a business partner, Nicole White, with Rock and Roll Team Building, and all through my career, I look back now and I go, did I actually, was I actually present in that moment at Hyde Park? There was probably parts of the day I was, but there was also parts of the day I was like, so caught up in the, oh my God, I'm backstage and that's, that's, the, that's Neil Finn or, or that's, you know, the, the backstage area at Hyde Park at the McCartney gig was just like a who's who of rock and roll, British rock and roll. You had Dave Gilmore from Floyd and you all of these legends. And I'm standing there going, how did I get here? And I'm, I'm really, you know, worried about the gig. Once I'm on stage, I realized that, what am I, what was I stressing about all day? I'm here. So I got to the stage of warming up early. And this is what I've learned back to Chris Murphy, the blessing and the wisdom that, that Chris Murphy gave me from Inexcess is walking it out. So no matter what the gig is now, whether it's small, big, uh, I make sure I've got all my gear with me, double check packed so that there's no mistakes. I turn up and I get in quickly into that mode of performance as soon as possible. That's exactly where I was going to lead you, but you're leading the dance on performance moments. Dr. Tom Buckley and I talk about the construct on performance moments. It's the moments that matter. And for corporate people listening to this, think about an average day and you think, oh, I've got all these activities and meetings and emails. No, no, no. Cut it back in an average day. Like if you're a CEO of a large bank consulting firm, global telco pharmaceutical, you might have 10 to 15 performance moments. And the higher you go up the tree, Kieran, the more problems there are if you don't get that performance moment right. I think that for most workers, there'd be, say, six to eight performance moments in a day with meetings. So a performance moment for you is obviously when you do a gig or when you're doing a trial. And, and it's been littered through today. And I don't know whether you're conscious of that or whether you've just worked it out, you know, nature, nurture. You do a lot to get yourself ready, specific to what I would say is mental skills. So walking it out before you do it, that, that beautiful advice you got from Chris, is a pre-performance routine. We've spoken about confidence, is doing the work and then backing yourself. And we've spoken about identity, role identity is really important. And for you to go in within excess and to go, hey, I'm Kieran Gribben and I'm playing within excess and I've still got my identity and nothing like getting you back to normal when you go back and you've got a young child and a wife who doesn't give a shit about 30,000 people in Buenos Aires, but, you know, go get me some formula. Uh, and then I look at also what you've done around mindfulness and being present. And so 
getting to what I saw two weeks ago, I was MC at Lunch with Lee. Shano's up on stage with a, a number of cricket legends, Lenny Pascoe, Gavin Robertson, Richard Chiqui, like Australian royalty in cricket. And then there's mainly blokes in the room. A few of them had a higher waist-hip ratio than I'd like as, as, as an exercise physiologist. So, you know, there's some, some good gags going on, <laughs> drinking at those sporting lunches. The musician yep. is normally the background music, not the main act. And then you start, and there was a guy near me, and he said, quote, you'd started Van Morrison. And about a minute into it, he just go. He just goes to his mate, who the fuck is that? And, and, and I actually thought the same thing. Because I've known you outside and you know, I've known you this rock star and sort of Googled it ready for our interview, but I'd only seen you as Kieran, the guy who lives on the South Coast and got a couple of Irish lads who've got a beautiful well-being business in Maroubra and we, we've got to give that a plug in a moment as well. But when I saw you sing, you changed and you, you were like that earlier today. So talk, talk me through that. What goes through your mind as you get ready to perform? Well, it starts on the very moment you open your eyes. Unfortunately, because you're, I'm not a good morning person and, and most gigs are like late and you've got a late night before. So, you know, it's gig day. I suppose it's the same with a sporting guy. It's match day. It's like, you know, this is it. Um, so it's warming up the vocal. It's getting the vocal into a state that it's ready to sing. Um, and that day you got me, I was coming off an international flight four days earlier where I'd been working in two weeks in the States. I'd done a gig in Hamilton Island. I'd done a f three gigs in two different locations on Thursday and got up. That was a Friday morning and had to crawl out of bed and get to that state of performance. So that's always in my mind all week going, and that wasn't the end of it. I had to go a full weekend after seeing you. So it's about longevity with the vocal um, so that you're, so that you know that you can stand on stage so that you're not damaging the vocal by singing, which is easily done. And even in that environment, but where you're speaking, but I think, you know, as a musician, like I say, I've heard many musicians say, it's like, hurry up and wait. You, you, you travel a lot of your day or you're going to the gig or you're, and it's those are that are that 15 minutes or 45 or two hours, whatever that time is to perform where you want to be hitting that, just right and that that morning I was we were setting up PA and there's room starting to fill up so you're not you're not in your natural environment so you have to sort of think quick get it to a stage of well let's get this sounding well and just perform and then when it gets to performance stage I just think all I can at that stage is do your best um, and if the, if there's a little bit of hoarseness in the voice well you got you got to forgive yourself instantly and move forward because there's another note coming um, so it's about breath centering oneself and being being in the moment so that when you you hit that first note people are going okay well this guy means business and that's obviously evolved and changed as you've gone from playing in pubs in belfast where you've got people jumping on stage and you're they're basically fearing for your life as only one of two Catholics in the entire room to then rocking it out within excess. So there'd be a big change from gigging as a 17 or 18 year old to 30,000 people in Buenos Aires. So can you pull on some of the skills you've learnt along the way? And, and did you ever bomb out? Did you have any of those moments where you either didn't perform or you went, oh my God, I've got to change that because I'm, I'm wasting too much energy? Every night, I walked off the stage with an excess going, I can do that better tomorrow night. I can do this one better tomorrow night. It was always about getting to the place of, and you know, 
10 gigs in, I'd ironed out all the creases that I'd wanted to iron out and and the band had settled with me in it and I had settled with them around me. I wasn't looking at Kirk Pengilly every night going, oh my God, that's Kirk Pengilly. I was looking at, that's just Kirk and he's in the middle of the Suicide Blonde solo and I'm like on my knees pointing to him going, how good is this and enjoying it. Andrew Forrest taught me a thing when I joined the band as well that that it's entertainment. It's not just, you, know, you can't go on there and stare at your shoes. You are an entertainer. You have a job. People are worked all week. They've bought the ticket. They want to be entertained. There's no one in the audience with their, there, there's musicians might be in the audience going, or people might go, fuck, who's this guy singing with excess? It's my job to win them over as quickly as possible and draw them in. But but it's also my job to gel in with the band and, and be, uh, you know, it starts there with the music and then, you know, but it's the entertainment. Andrew always said it's not just about music, it's entertainment. Mm. And, and entertainment is a, is a craft that I've had to learn by the million mistakes, sadly. But you also must have learned a way to downregulate because you don't go home as the rock star because you'd soon get told you're not. <laughs> yeah. What do you do to downregulate both physically and and or psychologically. So after a gig, is there a process you use to you know, become husband, dad, normal mate? Because that's I, I met you as the normal guy, yep. which was interesting. I've seen you as the rock guy. It's congruent, but it's, it's a very different state. Yeah, look, I think I think meditation, breath has helped me after gigs. The biggest problem at the very you know with the NXS gigs in particular, and that, this has happened in many gigs uh, when you when you you build up to this moment and then you can't sleep after because the adrenaline is running in your system at four a.m. in the morning and there's a six a.m. lobby call to fly to get a bus to go to the airport and you you still haven't slept. So uh, there's there's a few routines that I've sort of after gigs where I'm warming down the vocal and it's just gently it's focusing on the breath and big deep breaths and then just slow very gentle slow notes uh long slow notes at different tones starting high and doing ooh, like they would calm a baby down oh you're okay you just talk it down the baby little baby go to sleep that type of thing give, give, give me a bit more of a demo because I think I need this after I I do gigs, which is last week I had 1,500 people in a live audience for one hour. Different as far as, you know, I'm not a musician, but similar as far as managing state. I sometimes find it hard to shift out of that, so I, I need some of this myself. So show me a little bit more concrete. What does that look like? Well, like also music itself, uh, you know, if you're on stage singing in excess songs all night, well, then you need to change the record because those songs will play in your head overnight. And I'll go to bed that night with the song that I made, the, the, the thing that annoyed me, what I did, I shouldn't have did. I'm replaying that one. The song is on loop in my head. So I'm living those four or five minutes on loop. Uh, and so piece of instrumental music running in the background. When if I come into a hotel after a gig, I, I might go for a walk to sort of burn off a wee bit of the this sort of nervous energy, a wee bit of the adrenaline, just to walk it down. Again, breath, slow hums. And also fake yawning. Uh, even when I'm doing warm-ups in the day, you, when you yawn, you get this huge intake of air. You go, oh, you know that one? Oh. So the big, the more air you can get into the lower part of the lungs, and then hold it down in there, and then and then letting the air out of your like it's a balloon, so you hold the air in and go. Yeah. 
I'm still changing the tone of the S as I'm doing it. That's putting no pressure on the vocal cords. It's calming me down. It's calming the vagus nerve down. It's centering yourself. Before you know it, you've got long, deep breaths you're doing. And if you're having a conversation with someone after that, you're drinking a cup. I, I don't drink alcohol. I would drink, you know, chamomile tea after a gig. Rock and roll is not what it once was. It used to be sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Now it's... Uh, Mindfulness, meditation, and chamomile tea. God, you've exactly, done... Exactly, mate. That's the new rock the and roll. You've done the worst marketing gig for any young person listening to this saying, I'm going to go out there. Now, well, I, I, Scott said it's a long way to the top, but you have to drink chamomile tea and do plenty <laughs> of vocal exercises. <laughs> but it is... It, I, I love pulling the thread with all high performance because what you see on stage, what you see on the TV, what you see on the sporting field, there's so much work that goes behind the scenes. But did you always stay away from alcohol? Or is there, is there a tipping point for you where you went, no, nah, that's not part of my life anymore? Never drank in my life. It's hard to believe. Never, I ever. An Irish musician that's never drank alcohol. Never. It's a, it, it, it became like a thing that I refused to do then in my early, in my 15, you know, I was 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, it was very, very hard to stay away from it because it was everywhere. I was going into pubs, but I got educated pretty quickly in the pubs of Belfast because violence was a regular thing and alcohol fueled violence because the Irish uh, drinking is like a national sport. So you go into some of these bars and it's like, we're starting on a Friday afternoon, lads, and we're going the whole way to Sunday and eating's cheating. You know what I mean? They go all, they might have a feed on the Friday and then they're on the Guinness for three days. And then maybe having dinner, then maybe not eat all day Saturday except for a kebab Saturday night and they start again on Sunday morning. So you were seeing as a 15, 16, 17 year old, my father didn't want me to drink. And I said, I'll, I'll, I won't drink until I'm 18. I made that deal with him. Did your uh, family drink? Other, Did he have any family members? He didn't, he didn't drink either. And he had a bunch of brothers and sisters, not one of them drank a drop of alcohol. So they're very devout Catholic and don't get me wrong, it was plenty of fun. And, and that was the beautiful thing. I had this sort of perspective growing up surrounded in this community family that didn't need alcohol to get the party started. So it was like, let's get the guitars out and have a bit of a sing song. So I've got, a, I, I was home for a funeral in Ireland. I was home to see my mother and father and family for three weeks, about four months ago. And we had a funeral, family funeral. And we all had a party that night and I, I would say all, all of the musicians weren't drinking. They're all my cousins. And everyone was crying with laughter just because it was just fun and singing. And all the kids were there, the, the five, six, seven, eight-year-olds playing the Tim Wilsons and joining in and everyone had to do their bit. And, and there, was, there was Canadians in, um, and it was beautiful. It, it, yet again, just gave me that, it r reminded me of where I was from, but also uh, the, the, the quality of the people, the community that I was brought up in. Yeah, I love finding out people and why they've done different things. I can't help but think in Northern Ireland, when you said that to your friends at 16, 7 and 18, they probably wanted to get you in a plane and take you to Wales. Like, get out of here, champ. But when we're talking about longevity, one of the best things you can do, when you look at the populations around the world that live to 100 plus, there's six or seven things they all do. They live in communities. A lot of them live outside of technology or in mountain ranges. They have a really strong sense of community, what you've just spoken about. They have a real purpose and connection driving them forward. Uh, they all have sex, even through their 80s and 90s. They're still very active sexually. Like every time I say that to a bunch of men in a keynote, they're like, oh, write that down. Uh, yeah, I think that's an easy one. We'll keep that one going. <laughs> hey, the darling, guess what? 
<laughs> it's elective attention. And, and, and a number of these tribes will drink a little bit, but it's more social. It's not getting wasted. Yeah, I got an education because I started looking the pubs at 15 gigging and, you know, it was full on. Everyone was hammered. And then I went to Holland when I was 17 on a tour with a, a folk band and the Dutch were sitting drinking like a half pint over an hour, two hours. And I was like, and they were clapping after every song and they were quiet during the performances. And I was like, wow, that gave me an education. But then I was, one of the reasons why I didn't drink either, I started driving in 17, 18 and I'd bought a van and filled it full of PA and I was determined to make it in music. And the more I drove to these gigs and my mates were in the back drinking off, drinking vodka and sleeping it off on the way back, the more I realized that, you know, I'm still getting the party going here. I'm part of it all. And you, you, when you're surrounded by the party and everyone's having a few, it's easy to slot right in. And people forget that you're not drinking. Once they get past the stage that I'm drinking water or I'm drinking tea, they think it's vodka or they think it's something else. They don't, no one cares. And I got past that stage. It probably took me maybe to sort of 22, 23. And I realized, right, the longer I've done this, I never want to drink. I'd got my education at that stage. And a major competitive advantage to help others and teach rock and roll team building and vibrate your mind. I'm looking forward to working with you on this. And there's a couple of corporate events coming up we're going to have a chat about. And I want to get you in there. Can anyone learn to sing? Or can you teach? Because I, I, I would love to sing. And I had that gig I was telling you about last week, 1,500 people, Repco. 100 year anniversary and a lot of uh, stage crew are musicians i think it's a they, they work at clubs of a night and during the day uh when they come out yeah they, they mm. don't have much sunlight but they go into the big conferences they're always dressed in black they look like roadies or musicians the, the lady on the stage who's setting me up the lovely lady named sheree told me she was a singer she had this raspy voice and she said to me oh you must sing you've got a voice with good projection i said sheree i am shit but i'm interviewing a mate next week i'm going to ask him could I learn to sing? I feel like I'm tone deaf. Yeah, you could, absolutely. Uh, psychologically, people talk themselves out of it because, you know, they had a bad experience at a choir or in school or their mum said, oh, I don't know, Andrew, you haven't got a singing voice, but you're good at sport. And then Did I tell you about that karaoke bar I went to when I was 19, studying sports science? Lovely well, girl named... <laughs> it was that girl. She <laughs> said, mate... Mate, you're gorgeous, but Becky you, Tam. Mate, you killed me with that Becky, song. Becky, if you it listen just, to this, Becky was this lovely girl. I had so I just had the hots for Becky, and I went to this karaoke bar. Two things I did wrong. One that night is I had a bit of drink as a skinny middle distance runner. I think I had two wines. That was equivalent of most people having two bottles. And we went to a karaoke. She said, do you sing? I went, oh, not really. She said, oh, you got a really good voice. <laughs> I reckon you, it, was, oh, it was awful. I never saw Becky after that night. You went, but you went down in flames, man. It was the thought. It was the fact that you were up. You were going to do this and take it on, and and you did. And it just you just crashed and burned quickly. But you can still build that airplane again. And get out and sing. I'm I'm all for community choirs. I think community choirs are the best thing people can get involved in. You talk about uh, standing in the room, regardless if your tone is good or bad, or you you feel your ear is not the best. It's about tuning. So if you're standing beside a guy singing beside me here that note and a guy singing this note here automatically my ear is tuning to their vocal and then i'm ah together and yeah obviously i've been doing this a long time but it's just it's a strength and conditioning the vocal you're filling your lungs the lungs are the bellows you're only catching the the note on the way out and you can tune that vocal cord and everybody can hum so 
you get the same benefits, health benefits, by humming as you do as in singing. So you take a big deep breath and you hum. That's, that's humming is singing. And what's happening is all the neural pathways, both sides of the brain are firing up. You're getting more oxygen into the, the brain and you're resonating the body, the blood flow. So the more you do it, if you change the frequency, lower the frequency. It's, it's nothing the Buddhists haven't been doing forever. They talk about the seven chakras. Each chakra's got its own individual tone. And, you, and so, you know, you start low. That they're doing their arm. But they move up each chakra. And I truly believe that, you know, as a human body, which is physically 80% water, if you put water under, uh, cymatics they call this, if you put water under a microscope while it's sitting on a speaker and resonate it, it, it forms into perfect uh, geometric shapes. And so I think there's huge power just in sound and frequencies. And if you can do it yourself, well, then the health benefits of just think of humming and singing as a, an extension of meditation. I want to talk to you offline about how to get some lessons, or how to, to get going. This guy. I would love to, uh, I'm sure Becky's moved on and has got a very happy life, but I, I would, I, I've got un, unfinished business to, to uh, just to be able to get up and I have a hold vision a of you. I have a vision of you standing on a stage, mate, and, and the audience going mad. Pointing at Kirk. Going, <laughs> I don't know about Kirk. I, I don't know if I can pull Kirk into this picture, but I could probably get, uh, I don't know, we'll get, Shane Lee. Shane Lee. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, that, well, that's still aiming high. Hey, but uh, back to what you do for people listening to this, because a lot of our corporate audience, uh, book speakers, book events, uh, you are totally gifted, totally gifted, that beautiful blend between confidence and humility. Someone listening to this saying, I want some of him and his team. How does it work? What does it look like? Well, we have two businesses, and the first one started eight years ago. It's called Rock and Roll Team Building. And what I've done with rock and roll team building, I've created this environment using all of the skills that I have as a singer, performer, choir master, songwriter, and I've put it into a workshop that can work with small groups or large groups. And it's all about interactivity and it's about breaking down that, that battle we have in our heads of, oh, I can't sing, I can't sing. But it, what I do is quickly get the room to a point where everyone is breathing and singing together in unison. And we're, where we're all in it, then everyone's like, well, we're all connected on this one note. It's about, it's non-competitive. It's about giving people the opportunity to stand on stage with a live band and be improvised, literally pull lyrics and music out of the air over an instrumental piece of music where I'll have a go and I'll go, okay, we've, we've come up with these lyrics. I'm going to have a sing it and Andrew, you're up next. And it's, it's really interesting. Those moments have been some of the most uh, amazing moments of my career where you see you know the person has never been on a stage before in their life. They're standing beside you and you can see physically they're shaking, but they take that deep breath and they step into that place of the unknown and they go for it and they sing in, into a microphone in front of a band where there could be 500 people in the room or 200 or whatever it is. They're workmates and you, you have this moment where they're come alive and they realize they're quite good and this is really the fun is kicking in and then the audience this reaction of the audience going oh my god that's john or that's mary and mary is actually brilliant and the laughter and the joy so this release it again it's 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 laughter it's entertainment 
Yeah, have you have you unearthed any rock stars in that, or have you unearthed people who've gone on and maybe joined a band or a choir? Do you get much feedback? Thank you. That yeah, actually untapped. In, uh, absolutely. I have one actually in the northern beaches of Sydney. There's a band that was formed out of a workshop that I did, and these guys still gig, and it's it's wonderful just to be a part of leaving people the the joy of music and sowing that little seed and real making them realise that. Well, you know, there's a lot of mystery and 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 uh, around you know music and songwriting and and everyone thinks well you know these guys have special powers or something. Yes, I I've gifted as I can sing and tune and I can hear music when I pick up a guitar and a piano and I can create stuff. But everyone's got that. I I truly believe it's just that I I I realized it when I was six years of age and then I haven't really grown up. I've, I've been able to go back to that childlike. So it's that state of play that I get to. Um, that anyone can get to if they allow themselves to go there. If they drop, as uh, Ty Kennelly and David uh, Eccles from WNI always say, dropping the armor to let it just go into that, you know, the body armor that we always hold. I'm glad you came back. There's a few open loops. We had to close it with Dave and Ty. Ty, former Sydney Swans legend. Uh, they've got a wonderful business as well. They meet it a Wednesday now. They've opened up, I see, at Balmoral. So if you're in Sydney and you live near Maroubra Beach or if you live near Balmoral Beach, we'll put the contact details on the show notes so you can go there and it's a bunch of blokes talking about well-being, mental health and just connections. I started with a few Irish lads having a crack. You introduced me to them. We went there about a month or so ago now. Great concept. And it really is so much of what you're about. It's about connection and from all different forms of life, just having a common common cause to connect. Yeah, well, I, I think what I've realised and Tag and Dave has realised that there's a need and a lot of people are waking up to it now. Thankfully, there's a lot of talk about mental health and well-being in general and looking after oneself. And COVID, the, the era of COVID was a very lonely time for everyone. And what we've realized coming out of it is just how powerful human connection is and being in the room or just being around people. So, you know, these guys, it's based around exercise, what they do on the beach at 6 a.m. and on the beach in Maroubra. And, and, but it's, a, it's also a circle of trust. If someone's feeling down or good, someone wants to share something good or share, share anything, you can stand there and share it. And then we all get in the water and, and then it's the it's the camaraderie that's just standing around having a cup of tea, a cup of coffee after where you just you're taking that time in your day just to you've got the exercise, you've woke up early and it's still not even seven o'clock and you're having a cup of coffee and you feel good about yourself because you're talking to a mate or you're talking, you're asking someone how's their day going or how they've been. And that those type of situations, circles of trust or whatever, how they'd be described are rare and they were certainly rare during COVID. So I think, you know, with music. Sport and music will play, they already are playing a massive role, but I think we're at the the start of a a new era of appreciation for participation in sport and music. And they can both do a lot within community projects, certainly on the beach. And as a father and as someone, you know, two boys, I, I know the power of it in the education. So, you know, you get to that point of your life where you're going, well, I've got all of this knowledge and I've, I've done all of this running around for 30 years with music. You want to be a mentor to kids. You want to help, you know, the, the, the kids coming through. And music, you know, is, is uh, I work with uh, Don Spencer, who started the Australian Children's Music Foundation, and they bring, you know, music programs into schools that, that don't have them. And, you know, these teachers go into rural areas, indigenous areas, and 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 bring it. The, the the difference in the education level just by adding a music program uh, is ridiculous. Kids want to turn up, 
there's a teacher coming on a Monday, they get, they get food, they get music and they get inspired, they get their spirits lifted. So, you know, to me, it's not, it's not rocket science, but there is a mystery surrounding music that people think, well, I can't get involved with this, but uh, you know, if you take one bit of advice from me is get your kids into a community choir, get them involved with an instruments. You don't have to be able to play, just get them in the room with other musicians, get them in the room. You're such a wonderful band member. Can you go back to being rock star lead singer again? Tell us about Vibrate Your Mind. We've still got to give, let people know. So the two businesses you have, rock and roll team building, you get people up singing. I can imagine that's a whole lot of fun. Vibrate Your Mind, what's the difference? Vibrate Your Mind was born during the COVID era where I dreamt up with Nicole, my business partner. I started reaching out to these wonderful, talented people. I got, I got obsessed with sound frequency and healing with sound frequency. So I started reaching out to sound healers and sound therapists and neuroscientists and all of these smart people that have dedicated their life to this. And it's such an old ancient tradition that's kind of been forgot about. Modern era, not a lot of people are going to church on Sunday. They're not, they're going to whatever, but those were the places where you would stand in a, in a big wide open space, a cathedral, and you'd hear a choir and an organ and it would blow you away in a harmony. Vibrate your mind. To me, it's about working with like-minded souls, beings that want to lift spirits with the power of sound, the power of music. And I've, I've befriended a lady called Barbara Jackson, who's a Kiwi, she's 71, one of the most toughest, powerful people I've ever met in my life. And she's a sound healer of 15 years. And, and I have another gent, Nadav Khan, who I men mentioned earlier. So we're about to launch this into the corporate space. And this is about you know, retreats, getting people away and, and focusing on resonating one's body with the, your own body, your voice, the most powerful way to communicate and, and de-stressing, taking the anxiety away, using it, but also getting involved with instruments, pianos, guitars, singing, using songwriting not as an entertainment, but as therapy, using, using choir not as entertainment, but as healing. It, we're, we're at the start of a new era with this. We're, we're, we're doing gigs. We've got, we've picked up fancy blue chip or whatever they're called companies and uh, that are booking us for these healings. I wouldn't call them ceremonies. They're experiences with sound. Well, it's also opening up, I imagine, especially for corporate. So there's a group I'll talk to you offline. It's a business forum. And it's one of the largest ones in Australia. I work with the, the top level and the the guy that pulls it all together, I'm working with a few chapters, I'll provide that intro offline. I think you would scare the shit out of them. And <laughs> and I mean that with respect because they are businessmen and women. And there's also another chapter which are family businesses who've been in control, second or third generation family business owners who've always, you know, there's the ups and downs of business, but they're they're in their runway, they're in their slot. And then suddenly yeah. you go, okay, here's a microphone and sing. Well, scare the living daylights. I'll, I'll introduce you to them. I think that would be great in their syllabus for next year to just jolt them out of their comfort zone. I, I really like the idea of helping facilitate to get them uncomfortable. Yeah, well, thank you, man. I think one thing that I learned with regards to Vibrate Your Mind, you know, rock and roll team building was all about me and I surrounded myself by musicians, but I was going out there trying to be the sort of what's the guy, the guy that stands in the middle of the, the circus ring, the circus master uh, and, and controlling bands and moving it all. And I still do it and I love it dearly. Vibrate Your Mind is about building a community of, of really like minded people that are 
uniquely skilled in their own way uh, that can I, I can add what I can add because this is me. You can add whatever you can add and this person over here adds and then it becomes its own entity. So it's about sharing in the knowledge, the wisdom and passing it on with, with the, I think in the corporate space, there's obviously pressures. I've never worked for a corporate company apart from being walking into the room where I'm doing events with them. But I, I, it, it's still all about communication. It's all about bringing people together with, and you know, if you're going to uh, be a successful band or you're going to be a successful team, it, whether in sport or in business, it's all about getting that sort of communication together and, and singing and humming and getting into that state of play, that state of flow quickly so that we can communicate a bit better. Someone asked me the other day, what makes a good musician? And it's a, it's about listening more than anything else. That's what, that's what separates the great musicians from the good musicians. The guys that are the girls that can hear the drummer slowing down and they look at them and that, so that the contact is there. There's just this t telepathy uh that listening between each other so you know i suppose that's what vibrates your mind i suppose we're we're, we're at a start of uh something with it. we're currently playing in the corporate space but i can see this business moving into you know community uh in in the world and getting amongst it with communities and families and kids and everyone i'll come back and interview in 45 years you'll be 90 starting three more businesses and still <laughs> as passionate as you are right now probably <laughs> uh, probably let's if get, i'm still living god willing you'll be living i'm going to make sure of that let's get to the part that we call the performance intelligence baker's dozen i'm going to hit you with rapid fire questions there's 13 of them specific to high performance just the first question that comes to your mind question number one apart from joe echo or leia what is your favorite band or your favorite song oh me and my shadow wrote it 25 years ago it's never been released why not? Never got around to getting the, the definitive recording. I recorded it about four times and I've never released it because I've never been happy with it, the, the production. Okay, watch this space. Question number two, your favorite movie? Amelie uh, Poulin, French movie. Love the soundtrack. It's, I listen to the soundtrack at least once a month. Sometimes I play it week, weekly, but the movie's quirky, fun, and only a the way the French can make movies. Three, your favorite book? Danny the Champion of the World by Roald Dahl. It takes me back to a very, very young age where I fell in love with reading on that book. Four is your favorite possession. I'm not one for possessions, but if I had to grab something in here, probably would be my Telecaster, which is hanging over there on the wall. I bought it in Jacksonville, Florida. It was, it was the, the one guitar that I always wanted as a musician, and I bought one, an American Telecaster. Okay, and number five, your favorite food? Anything in a Thai restaurant, but I would say, if I have to pick then, well, anything in a Thai restaurant, but Japanese is pretty good too. So I would say agadushi tofu. Question six, what time do you wake up and go to bed each day? That must be hard when you're doing late night gigs as well. No two days are the same. I don't have any routine in my life Is whatsoever. your circadian rhythm out of sync? Completely. All right, we'll chat about that offline. I've got some tips for you as well. And next question, number seven, is one of those. Do you have a morning routine? Yes, I get a bit of exercise movement in the body and I get into a state of, I, I start thinking about gratitude 
things of gratitude as quickly as possible. If I don't do that by 11, 12 o'clock the day, I'm still grumpy. I'm going, okay, I got to start talking about counting the blessings again. You know, I'm healthy, I'm married, beautiful kids, X, Y, and Z. I'm singing songs for a living. So, Question eight, what does your weekly fitness schedule look like? Very fractured. I've got into, I suppose, my own lifting my own body weight, whether it be press-ups or sit-ups or hanging on bars. I love this. This is a new thing over the last sort of three, four months. It's less taxing on running on the body, on joints and that type of stuff. So stretching, Pilates, I suppose, but it's not Pilates. I've never done a Pilates class in my life, but it's all of that stretching, the arms, the fingers, every sinew, the neck, the shoulders, the back. I love it. Stretching out like a cat, as you say that. Question number nine, I'll give you a bit of a slant. Either tell me your favorite go-to productivity tip or as a singer-songwriter, a favourite tip of yours to get into that creative zone? Um, silence as well. People forget that silence is very, very important. I, I, I need to have at least two, three minutes before I even think about singing, creativity, and that can be a walk. It doesn't have to be sitting in silent meditating, but I do meditate. But I don't do it all the time. But I, I spoke to Nadav last week and he said, you can sit in the car, you don't have to close your eyes, you're waiting on the red light to go and you can just go. Um, then it's back to that hum again and centering oneself quickly. So yeah, that's, that's, that's where I try to get to in my day as quickly as possible. Some days I don't get there. 10, your most vivid childhood memory. Standing at four or five years of age in the traditional family Gribbon home where my grandfathers and ancestors, all of the Gribbons were born in. It's a 250-year-old home, stone building, in front of a fire with my uncle Patrick playing the fiddle. And I'll, I'll, I, can, I can feel the heat. And there's a roaring fire to my left and I'm looking at him and I can see a silhouette against the back of the, the, the window. He's standing in front of a window and he's screeching out a traditional Irish tune on a fiddle and just been stopped in my tracks going, wow. I think a, a career was formed in that moment. Question 11, the biggest adversity you've faced and what did this teach you? Oh, good one. I, I think biggest adversity. I think it's a constant battle with oneself being an artist and a musician, that controlling one's thoughts, the negative thought in particular, that little voice where there, there is six months of darkness in your life and there hasn't, hasn't been that much exciting happen and you're still having to try and dig yourself out of that darkness. That's been a journey and I've got really good at focusing on the, on the, the, the good stuff and not taking myself too seriously and not worrying about too much. You know, every gig has a beginning, a middle and an end and that's what I sort of go, that's, that's, every day is one of those two, so one day at a time. Question 12, what achievement or achievements are you most proud of? I think getting for a long time it was about getting recognition. I got that with the Madonna record and then obviously In Excess and all the other beautiful things that happened. But my neighbor recently, my Australian friend, Mick Woods, said to me, you know, I was running around busy, 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 Friday, Saturday, Sunday gigs, packing cars, running to this gig, running to that gig. And he said to me, you know, the kids were playing in the back garden. And he said, I'm like going, you know, you're always running around. And he goes, yeah, but mate, you're doing it. You're keeping a family and you're keeping a family as a musician. And that's a rarity, man. 
that and that in today's world um that's a i don't think people realize people think being a musician is is uh glamorous and it is and it can be but the glamour moments are just like little sprinkles and on top of your uh, salt and pepper on top of your bacon and egg roll <laughs> basically it's like hard slog early mornings hard work and a lot of sort of battling that self-doubt is the is the is the the toughest one and getting getting involved uh, it changes that and experience and, and just being surrounded by glorious musicians all my life has taught me much and question 13 what is your definition of high performance it's about functionality in it with one's body you know you talked about being a singer singer is not just about these vocal cords the singer is about getting the body into that workable state using the entire body so that your stance on stage your lungs on stage is projecting the vocal out and and so yeah that the definition of high performance is being able to do that back to back continually and still get up the next day and 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 being able to find in that balance of self-care and uh recovery because i don't care who you are if you stand and sing for two hours that's taxing on the body it's taxing on the on the on the, the voice and if you've got five of those in a row then you need to be fit so getting into that state of fitness and which i'm not at I've I've definitely nowhere near the fitness levels I was 10 years ago but I'm getting back to that I'm I've really started to focus on my fitness levels now because I know that's where I'm lacking um because I'm gigging again and I'm going whoa because it's it's a it's a taxing on the body standing on stage you've shattered the myth about what it is to be a rock star or maybe you've supplanted that with a new mental model not drinking chamomile tea uh, warming up the vocal cords, a performance warm-up to get ready for gigging, the physicality, it's not just your voice, it's the whole body, the whole instrument, winding down, journaling in a reflective way. You you do so much, and what's been great talking to you today, whether it's, I'm really, really curious, have you done this by default or design? Look, I, I never had a, a proper singing teachers. I, I, I had one um teacher that i went to a music college when i was 21 and prior to that i was dream i was a dreamer and but at what 21 i walked in banger college in that college it was four or five amazing musicians who had all done the hard yards one of them played trumpet for van morrison and he was the first musician of quality there have been many since but he was the first one one a month shy of my 21st birthday where he put my hand on my shoulder and he, he gave me the compliment and said, you're really good. And then he, and then he said, but you've got, fucks, you've got so much work to do, mate, and you need to get your shit together. And that was the first time anyone had ever said, you need to get your shit together. So that was a, and then I was, I was surrounded by these amazing musicians. And that's been my story ever since from, from I was 21 years of age. Well, I've been on stage since I was 15, even then 16, 17, you were turning up and there was a guy on guitar who was my age now, 45, who had done the hard yards and he could play. So the, you were seeing the level of the bar every time you stood on stage by the fellow musicians. And at that point, then you just realize, well, you know, keeps you humble when you stand in a room and the guy's a fucking demon on guitar and you're like, whoa. And he's 10 years younger than you. That keeps you humble. Mm. Now, I've asked you a lot of questions today. This is the flip. So is there a question 
that I should ask you in wrapping up? Or the flip, is there a question you want to ask me? Ah, that's a good one. No, I don't have a question you should ask me. I'll ask you a question. I'll, I'll set you a, a, a goal then. If I give you a, a vocal exercise that you can use over the next month, and then we will set a date not so far into the future. You choose the date. Um, would you stand on stage beside me and sing a song for the first time beside me? My first thought to that, and I'm doing what you do beautifully, <laughs> just pausing. I don't have the whiskers you've got, but it scares the shit out of me. My heart rate's gone up. Wizard here's here laughing. Getting out of your comfort zone regularly is what I espouse to other people. So there's a part of me going, no way. Why would I do that? I'm comfortable. But the other part of me that loves making life uncomfortable and learning, absolutely. Let's do it. Yeah. Well, it's going to happen, mate. I look forward to it. We will put the date in the diary. I will send you a few sort of lower key gigs where you can walk in and be background. No one will even know you're there. You'll be like a rock and roll ninja. <laughs> I'm going to check this type of recording. I reckon my heart rate has seriously gone up 25 to 30 beats a minute. That mate, scares just, the shit out of me. Walk it out it. in your mind, mate. Walk it out in your mind. You flipped it beautifully. Hey, thank you for your time today. There's been so many great learnings. Look, domain expertise at any level, there's a there's a pathway that people work out themselves through mistake and trial and error and curiosity. But you've learnt a pathway at the youthful age of 45, to have domain mastery. But what I love is you're not sitting there going, yeah, Madonna, yeah, <laughs> done this stuff within excess. It's what's next. And I love that curiosity. I love that learning. For people who want to connect with you, what's the best way for them to find you on social media or website so they can get you, get your team building business, so they can go and do the vibration yeah. work as well? Well, it's rockandrollteambuilding.com is what we do. And that has... That, that business I'm unbelievably proud of. And then it's vibrateyourmind.com. So one's about getting people together with music and for for opening up the state, the mind of creativity. And the other is about letting go and using music and sound and your own voice to heal yourself. So yeah, come say hi. And if you want to check out some of my music, go to kieringribbon.com and there's links on Spotify and there's bits and pieces or Jack Music com with John Farris um, and, and check out Andrew Farris's new single. It's in, it actually made the the chart the country charts in the United States last week or two weeks ago. It entered the the main charts. So I'm like, yay, we're back, we're back in there. And it's nice. It's just wonderful to see Andrew come alive and find his own be the front man. And uh, so yeah, check out some music, get in touch, come to a gig. I'll put all those details in the show notes because your name is a good Irish spelling, Kieran Gribben, not as, mm. as it sounds like in Australia, uh, but we'll put all the details on the show notes. Thank you. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for being so authentic and thank you for scaring the shit out of me as this, happening, mate. this interview Wanna, wraps up. We'll get, a set, we'll get a set of you know rock star glasses on you. You pick the song and it's happening. Right, you it, just pick the song. All right, it'll happen. Do you want to just let, re, reach over your shoulder? What are you going to take us out to? To bring my heart rate back down. Hang on a second. Well, I've done it. I've done an excess for you, so I'll do something else for you. Um, what about an Irish song? Yeah. Well, I met my love by the gasworks swamp. 
It's a dirty old town, and I've just there got you go, really man. Confident. This is your first. This is your first. Watch, uh, watch this space. Thanks, Legend. <laughs> <laughs> Hi again, it's Andrew, and I hope you really enjoyed that episode. We would appreciate if you helped to amplify the Performance Intelligence Podcast by sharing episodes with your friends and with your colleagues by going to iTunes and leaving a rating and review. This really does help get the message out to a wider audience and I love reading the comments as well. If you'd like to know more about booking me as a speaker at your next annual conference or company offsite or purchasing one of the books I've written, including MatchFit, or if you'd just like to receive my monthly e-newsletter, which is called the AM edition, that has stacks of information specific to all things human performance, go to andrewmay.com and we'll see you on the next edition of Performance Intelligence. Performance Intelligence.